there's two pots. There's a capital pot and an operational pot. And they're both in the past administered quite separately. But actually, they're buying the whole life of the building and they need to look at the whole life cycle cost. And for that matter, what happens to the building at the end of its life. Kia ora, I'm Troy, here as CEO and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Today's conversation is with Metals New Zealand Chief Executive, Nick Collins. Together, our associations have engaged with government and its stakeholders in the government's procurement reform process. We believe we have a workable set of rules in place to allow appropriate consideration of the local supply chain. However, in the New Zealand context, what is now urgently needed is a greater effort by government to provide clear guidance on balanced decision making and for procurers and the supply chain to interact and comply with the set rules. So Nick, it's not really an elephant in the room anymore that the building and construction sector in New Zealand is under a bit of pressure. We've seen many companies going through receivership, withdrawing from projects, choosing not to bid for projects. What are the underlying procurement issues there? Okay, so I think we need to qualify the sector and there are three components. One is the vertical construction sector, one is infrastructure and one is residential. And it is the vertical sector that is struggling, partly because of complexity, part in in what they build, design and build. Partly, I think, also because of the role of government being the chief procurer in that space. Um, We don't the, the second-tier constructors that aren't as visible as the first-tier constructors appear to be continuing to build the way they have always built. And, and generally, they have long-term relationships with developers and those seeking construction. It is in the tender market where... and and the large tender market where most of the damage is being wrought. MB just recently closed off the consultation on edition four of the procurement rules. What were the issues there that Metals raised um, and what were the key differences in between edition three and four? So quite a change between three and four in terms of the openness to New Zealand business, the benefit to New Zealand and the focus on construction skills and the construction sector. Um, And so I I think, you know, there's some real positives around shifting from a price only to a much broader um, deliverable for New Zealand and so, and, and there's a really good diagram in there that focuses on the four-legged st- sustainability stool, if you can describe it there, around economic, social, cultural, and natural sustainability. Um, and I think, and one of the points we made was um, to highlight the, the strength of that, that it is 
move beyond lowest price. The challenge is how do you measure those other components? And wouldn't it be a good idea to align MB's language with treasuries and to ask tenderers to deliver to the four capitals that are defined in the living standards framework. Um, I think it's important that if Treasury and government in a budget environment are going to talk about the living standards framework, why wouldn't procurement deliver to the living standards framework? But, you know, we need to acknowledge they've made good progress in wider access to New Zealand business. And they also ask the question, how would you define a New Zealand business? And I think for construction, that's really important because it's very easy to have a shell of a construction company that comes from anywhere, whether it be New Zealand or elsewhere. Um, it, and it needs to, to look at that business's contribution, once again, across the living standards framework. So in the economic space, you know, what is the PAYE that's paid? What is the... Um, tax at the end of the year on profit that's paid. Um, but how does that business contribute in terms of to the community, um, to society, and what is their impact on you know natural capital? So good progress in that space. And what is the significance in the proposed rules around the use of must and should Ah, well, we highlighted that in the metal submission, and thank you for bringing that to to our attention, because the language is critical, and I think um, unless you read the preamble carefully, you don't understand that while the rules are mandatory for government agencies, some of the rules are musts, i.e. they have to follow them, and some of them are should, which is best practice. And we highlighted two areas that we felt were particularly important, that the language is around should, as in best practice, and not around must. So the first area was around planning and the requirement for government agencies to plan and share that planning in advance. Particularly with construction, you know, if if we want to have a stable, secure industry, we need good forward horizons for businesses to invest. The planning role is a best practice. It's a should. And we feel, because of the rules that come after it, particularly with respect to delivering value across the four capitals, that that planning rule must be a must. The second area, and the one that I've really struggled to get officials to understand, is the relationship in the construction sector between the prime contractor who signs a contract, who is in a must position, but the relationship between the prime contractor and the subcontractor is a should, i.e. it's best practice for the subcontractor to be bound in the same way as the main contractor. And because our sector works on a subcontract, subcontract basis, um, what government is seeking to achieve around delivering to the living standards framework or the four sustainabilities, what they're trying to achieve around construction skills, around value to New Zealand, 
it is totally undermined by the fact that subcontract main contract relationships are seen as being best practice and not mandatory compliance with procurement. Mm, I think it's a really important distinguishment that needs to be realised within our industry. And hopefully government was listening to the consultation process because I, I believe that most of us in the sector raise that as a concern. Um, moving back to the living standards framework. So uh, you mentioned it, we're awaiting our living standards budget from this government. How important do you think it is for members of our organisations to become aware of the living standards and to start thinking in that framework? I think it's absolutely critical because if we just focus on environmental sustainability, we've only got, you know, one part, it's as equally fraught as focusing a budget purely on economic issues. And I think you know, we we need to look at the jobs created, the relationship businesses have with their communities, um, their in- engagement with, you know, um, yeah, community. Um, it it is the full sum of the game, and not just what are the environmental impacts. And I think you know, if you look at, and I'll pick on the Green Building Council, there. The whole focus of their tools is around environmental sustainability, and it misses the mark around the jobs that are created, the other, I suppose, values that are delivered to New Zealand Inc. Mm. I think it's a really workable framework, but it does require a lot of mindset change around the qualitative versus quantitative benefits of an activity or an industry. What do you reckon there? Well, the challenge is, you know, what gets measured gets managed and really easy to measure dollars and cents. Um, Very hard to measure the role of a business in its community, how it looks after its people. Yes, there are some indicators there, but yeah, it's very much more subjective. And and that's the challenge is how we're going to measure the other components of what delivers quality of life. Nick, we were both at the CIC, the Construction Industry Council Strategy Day, where MB gave a presentation on their procurement initiatives, and they raised um, four areas of focus that government have given to them, which were um, increased access to government procurement, size and skill of the domestic sector workplace, fair work, and transition to a net zero economy. What are your views in terms of how that would impact our sector? I, th- I don't think we're disadvantaged by that at all. In fact, I think the opportunity around skills development um, is, you know, we're well positioned there um, around the transition to the l- low emission economy. I think, you know, the conversations we've had around the role of the Sustainable Steel Council and looking at, you know, the the total package there, not just environmental sustainability, but also how the metal sector contributes to the broader living standards framework. Um, you know, I think we've got some pretty good cr- credentials there that position us well 
if you focus on the total life cycle of what's being built. If you're just going to focus on the first up cost or the first up emissions, then you know our sector is a, a disadvantage. But I think what those rules do is encourage the purchaser to take a much more holistic, and they use the word holistic in the rules, view of what's being delivered. Um, and frequently the challenge, and I think with things like with organisations like education, there's two pots. There's a capital pot and an operational pot, and they're both in the past administered quite separately. But actually, they're buying the whole life of the building, and they need to look at the whole life cycle cost. And for that matter, what happens to the building at the end of its life? Mm, life cycle analysis is really important. Yep. I think the other thing that um, really jumped out at us at that meeting or presentation was um, Think Timber. So we've both been worried about wood first. Tell us what was discussed around Think Timber. I don't know that I've been worried about wood first. I just feel that maybe the whole story's not being told. And I think with respect to Think Timber, um, you know, it's a bit like the early rhetoric that came out about a carbon zero New Zealand and you know how many trees were we going to need to plant to offset and my recollection is when they worked it out it's something like 70 kilometres wide from Wellington to the far north um, so we need the data before we kind of leap in and around Think Timber you know a decade ago the challenge was what are we going to do with the wall of wood and now it's where's the supply to ensure that those timber mills, the wood processing plants, have a secure future. So things have flipped a lot in a short period of time, largely because China has bought up our future timber. And so I just, you know, government needs to progress carefully. Or I was on site last week, lots of timber, and... The engineered timber had come in from Australia. Now, under CER, that's fine. But actually, if our timber's going to China and it's going to be processed, we don't want to see the value being added offshore when it should be added in New Zealand. So I think th there's anything to... Well, it's not the role of procurement to favour one material over another. Um, and... I mean, I certainly get in the big scheme why we, the importance of forestry, not just exotic forests, but also natural forests, because one needs to be mindful that you don't see a lot growing underneath pine trees, whereas underneath native trees, you see a lot of regeneration. Um, and, you know, I just look at that and think, well, how long can you keep on planting pine trees because the acidity builds up in the soil? So it's it's that bigger picture that we're not seeing at the moment. So, And what do you see as Metal's role to change that perspective? I think our role is to ask the questions. Um, and, and bear in mind, there are things that Metal's do that we work with the wood processing industry. So we're involved in an initiative, the Manufacturing Alliance, where um, both Metal's and the wood processors are advocating the future of New Zealand manufacturing. So we have a lot of interests in common. So it, it's not, I don't see it as a wood 
metals. I see it as what are the best opportunities and the best pathway for New Zealand Inc. rather than a metals versus um, wood. And also I think if you look at, you know, the opportunities around future construction, um, you know, engineered timber alongside structural steel and light steel framing, uh, there's a whole heap of opportunity there that we haven't realised. And what do you know about the construction industry accord? Only what I've heard secondhand, which is probably the most common common comment response you'd get if you asked people that. Um, And my understanding is the Construction Accord has come from the initiative of the vertical construction sector raising its concerns partly around government procurement, partly around too much risk on the contractor. But let's be clear, this is a political initiative from government ministers to work with the construction sector to address some of the woes. So it's politically driven. It's not a lead role that's been taken by the construction sector. Yes. And I think in a political um, framework like that, it's really important to at least try to combat the perception that it's an old boys club for consultation. And I think the fact that you don't know very much about the accord and I don't know very much about the accord is indicative that there might be an issue there. Um, So can I just address that? Because I think it, it was the vertical construction guys who put up their hands and I think this was a different group than we've heard from before. So in the past, it has been the construction strategy group or, you know, others. This was a group that came together around the issues of vertical construction. And, you know, some of those guys have been quite outspoken for some time about the issues and they have been equally, um, I suppose, challenging their peers as much as they have been challenging government. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what consultation happens as a a result and how much is already signed up for by the time it goes out to consultation. Uh, So moving on, um, what are the key procurement challenges that you can see in terms of vertical construction for New Zealand? I I think it's it's firstly about um, the engagement for New Zealand businesses. And so, you know, we have... You know, Fletcher Construction, if I just take that example, I mean, yes, they're seen as a New Zealand business, but they've probably got more shareholders offshore than they have in New Zealand. So how do you define a New Zealand business? Most of those top-tier constructors we have in New Zealand are are businesses that have come in from overseas. So, you know, what's important in the scheme of things, to my mind, is the value they deliver back to New Zealand – Um, that's the first issue. The second issue is a balance of risk between the government procuring and the sector delivering. And we have got to the stage that construction contracts have become incredibly complex. Or sorry, the addendums have become incredibly complex. And, you know, in terms of who's best positioned to take the risk, um, I mean, frankly, that resides with government and not with individual construction companies. 
Who do you see as um, the biggest government procurers for our industry? Uh, Looking forward, clearly in the infrastructure space, um, you've got NZTA and in the health and education space, um, you know, the... If you take Dunedin Hospital, I don't know what the quantum of that is, but it's big. Um, and you know, in the education space, partly because we're focused on least cost and least capital cost, we've got an enormous amount of rebuild work to do. Um, and then when you look at the sh- current shortage of housing supply and the anticipated need moving forward, and then Kiwi Build, um, residential has to be a big opportunity for our sector. Um, some of that will be medium to high rise, which um, you know steel has always been well positioned in. So we're talking at least three portfolios there. What is the role of government to ensure that the procurement processes across government are harmonised? I think first and foremost, we need to build up procurement capability in those government agencies and particularly to move away from least cost to total value and you know that I'm, I'm not sure that procurement has until recently been seen as a, a profession that adds value um, it's more about minimizing cost so that the key challenge, I think, is building procurement capability, um, sharing the learnings across those government agencies. Um, NZTA have had a successful alliancing model for some time that hasn't been picked up by others. Um, and I think particularly in the residential space, the opportunity for smaller businesses to collaboratively work together to deliver projects. And... Just in conclusion, for our industry, what is the opportunity that the government's focus on the broader outcomes has in terms of procurement? Um, that, that, that's a challenging question because um, it is about building capability to understand that this is just not about a one-off cost. And I think when you're delivering for Housing New Zealand and they will own those houses for you know, 30, 50 plus years, the real opportunity to reduce, to deliver affordable housing, not by reducing the initial capital cost, but by reducing the running cost and the maintenance costs. And, you know, houses that capture rainwater and generate power, if you want to deliver affordable social housing, there has got to be the best opportunity. We're just not taking what's given to us. Sounds like we've got a bit of work to do in terms of life cycle analysis. Thank you, Nick, for coming in. It was great speaking to you again. I feel like I speak to you every day, but this was special. (laughs) Thank you, Troy. (laughs) See you. So there you go. Thanks for joining our conversation with Nick today. We knew it was a no-brainer to have this as a podcast. It's a concern we often hear voiced by our members. So as we advocate on your behalf to address these concerns, please step up and say your piece when we call for your comments, because every voice counts. Don't believe us? Then take the word of British businesswoman and human rights activist, Anita Roddick. If you think you're too small to have an impact, try going to bed with a mosquito. Food for thought till we meet next time. So hit subscribe, and if you liked what you heard today, please like, review or share with any metalheads you know. Let's spread the word.
If you liked what you heard today and want to learn more about Treasury's Four Capitals framework, let us know. HERA has commissioned Burl to use the framework to assess metals' contribution to the New Zealand economy. We were the first industry to do so, and this report is available to all HERA members. Details are in the show notes.